Hello, hello everyone. This is Dr. Aaron Stair and this is another episode of Causes or Cures. I'm really excited about this episode because we are going to be discussing what I consider to be a medical mystery, a scientific mystery. I'm talking about the Shroud of Turin. Some of you know what the Shroud of Turin is, of course, but some of you don't. It is a linen cloth that has an image of a man on it. It is a negative image that some people say was the burial shroud for Jesus of Nazareth, or the cloth that covered him was wrapped around him after crucifixion. Of course, some people don't believe that. In 1988, radiocarbon dating suggested that the shroud was from the Middle Ages, meaning, well, then it couldn't have covered Jesus of Nazareth. However, that is strongly refuted, and my guest will provide an excellent synopsis of that, as well as new details that you should know about, that I didn't know about, um, that really will make you go, wow. These are details that I have yet to see on the Shroud's Wikipedia page. Of course, you shouldn't go to Wikipedia if you want information on the Shroud. Um, The best information, the most well-researched information, you should go to theshroud.com. Lucky for us, the guy who runs that website, Barry Schwartz, is my podcast guest today. Who is Barry? Barry was the official documenting photographer for the Shroud of Turin research project, sometimes called STIRP, the team that conducted the first in-depth scientific examination of the Shroud in 1978. Today, he plays an influential role in Shroud research and education as the editor and founder of the internationally recognized Shroud of Turin website, the oldest, largest, and most extensive Shroud resource on the internet. It has more than 15 million visitors from over 160 countries. In the year 2009, Barry founded the Shroud of Turin Education and Research Association, a nonprofit organization to which Barry donated the website, his extensive shroud photography collection, as well as other shroud resources in order to preserve and maintain these materials and make them available for future research and study. He is also the president of that organization. So today, we are going to discuss the scientific evidence as it stands in 2020 for the Shroud of Turin. Everyone ready? Okay, let's get Barry on the line. Barry, thank you so much for doing this. I'm really excited uh, for this podcast and um, just to, I, I asked some of my listeners what sort of questions to, um, so I did get some requests. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, my dad is big into, uh, he follows your website. He read, he reads all these, I call him a shroud groupie because ah, he's, yes. <laughs> he's, he's so into it. So he was really excited to hear that I was chatting with you. Um, so I guess I'll just start and, and I, I don't know how much time you have, but you can stop or interrupt me or, or you know, whatever. No, no um, problem. I, I think we talked about doing an hour and I'm prepared for that. Okay, cool. Um, so, um, I'll start here. If I, um, researched you correctly, um, well, first of all, you're from Pennsylvania, like, so am I. Um, oh, really? Pittsburgh. Yeah. That's yeah. Funny. You're from Pittsburgh. I'm from the other side, um, a town called Trucksville, which I'm sure you've heard of. Um, maybe. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's a great town to be from, let me tell you. But anyways, um, you didn't believe if, um, as, as you didn't believe the shroud was authentic. I mean, you, you were there in 1978, which was amazing. Um, but you didn't believe it was authentic till 1995. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, I understand that one of the, I, maybe I, I would call it an advantage that I had back in 1978 and being on that team is that I'm Jewish. I was raised in an Orthodox Jewish home. I don't practice it, but I, that was my background. And I didn't want to get involved with something of a religious nature. I was a a professional photographer. 
Um, but that image property is what attracted me. Why did it take me another 17 years before I was convinced? Because it, I needed the science to convince me. I did not have the emotional attachment to the subject matter that naturally any Christian should have, I would think. But mm -hmm. it put me in a position of being really uh, not emotionally tied to the subject, so I just needed some empirical evidence to convince me. And it took a long time and access to all the data before I was finally convinced in 95 that the, the only logical explanation left was that uh, the shroud had to be the real thing. Um, and could you explain, um, what changed your mind? Like, uh, it had something to do with the blood stains, it did, right? It did. Yeah. Uh, okay. okay. Well, one of the things that literally the first five or 10 minutes that the shroud was in front of us, Vernon Miller, who was the chief scientific photographer, he and I were standing there and we were looking at the shroud and Vern had a lot more experience in the forensic side of things than I did. I was 32 years old at the time. And so... He, we were looking at the blood stains that were still reddish in color, and historically, you know, blood turns dark brown or black almost pretty quickly, actually. And so that was something that seemed to be a sticking point with Vern, and I agreed with him, uh, even though I didn't have the level of experience that he had. So uh, that was one of the kind of the outstanding questions that that was always in the back of my mind. But in the interim, there was all this other data that slowly but surely I came to understand. And that probably, that blood issue was probably the last thing. And I was on the telephone with Dr. Alan Adler, who was the blood chemist on our team. He happened to also be Jewish, uh, I should note. And uh, he had said to me on, in that conversation that he had pretty much was coming to believe that the shroud was authentic. And I said, yeah, but Al, you know, the blood, that the color of the blood still bothers me. And he got upset with me. He he got angry, actually. He said, didn't you read my paper? Well, that was written about 17 years earlier, and I'm not a blood chemist. So even if I read the paper, I'm not quite sure I would have understood. And he explained to me that he had found a high content of bilirubin, which is a compound uh, made in the body, in the I think, by the liver. And uh, typically from uh, people that had uh, high trauma or been beaten and tortured over a period of time, and so he said what happens, and this is his explanation now, that the uh, chemical in the blood, this, this chemical would break down the cell walls of the red blood cells and release the hemoglobin, and that's what accounted for the redness still of the blood. Now, since then, other research has been done that somewhat disputes that conclusion. But at the time... This was the blood expert on our team. I had to take his word for it. Any scientist will tell you that new data can always change your position here. And uh, so I'm not sure that that was 100% correct. There's some other theories about the red blood that we, we don't need to go into now. But at that moment in time, that was enough to sort of push me over the threshold and convince me that the blood, that the, there was a, the redness of the blood could be explained and that sort of was the last piece of the puzzle for me. And after that, I, I came to believe the shroud was authentic. But remember, that's based on all of the evidence. And there's right. so much so much more of it out there than the average person will ever want to even read. <laughs> but uh, being a part of that team and being a party to all that information, I had access to it. It was readily available to me. Uh, ultimately... A year later, it's uh, realizing that the public didn't have access to this information. That was also the impetus to, to build Shroud.com and put it online in January of 1996. And that was my effort to collect that data and make it available so that everybody had access to it. Remember, when the Internet was new back in the 90s like that, everybody didn't have access. And if you wanted to read some of these scientific papers, you'd have to go to a research library somewhere at a university just to access them. So I, I saw the Internet as a way of collecting this and putting it into one archive, and that's how Shroud.com was born. And next year in January, we'll celebrate our 25th anniversary online. Oh, wow. Congrats. That's amazing. Um, yeah. And you get like a, a ton of visitors, I would imagine. Um, uh, so far this year, it's around 1.7 million. Wow. Wow. Um, 
So you touched on the fact that um, obviously as data, we see it with the pandemic, as you get new data, uh, things change, people change, you change your opinions about things. Um, Correct. So now um, in 2020, in your opinion, um, is there any natural known scientific explanation that could account for all of the characteristics of the image? Well, uh, that's a great question actually, Aaron. Um, my feeling is this, that the Shroud has had one in-depth scientific investigation, examination in its entire history, and that was 42 years ago. The technology we used 42 years ago was state-of-the-art circa 1978. But 42 years have passed, technology exists today that didn't even exist in 1978, and the other technologies have been much more refined. So with only one set of tests ever performed on the shroud of this nature, in-depth tests, um, I'm not prepared to set aside the possibility of a natural explanation uh, before I step over a line and go to something beyond natural. Um, I just don't think we have enough data to answer the question. And I'll probably be one of the few researchers of the shroud that you ask that will tell you that the only correct answer to how is the image formed is we don't know. Yeah, we, we don't know. I mean, there's a lot of theories, but none of those theories can account for all the properties. And remember this, what we did in 78 more than anything else is we characterized what's on that cloth. We proved that the shroud isn't a painting because there's no paint pigments or binders anywhere on the cloth that are, are responsible for the image. We proved it wasn't a scorch as some had proposed because all the known documented scorches on the shroud when they were photographed with ultraviolet fluorescence, fluoresced in the red, the image, if it had been the product of a high temperature event, would have also fluoresced in the red. Instead, it didn't fluoresce at all and even quenched the background fluorescence of the cloth, which is kind of a yellow green. So we've eliminated that. We've eliminated photography. There's no traces of any silver salts anywhere on there that would have been uh, necessary for a photographic style image. So we can tell you what it's not, but we don't know of a single mechanism that can create an image with all those chemical and physical properties. Um, that's fair. Um, and I have to ask you, I'm sure you've ex expected a question about the carbon 14 dating. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so a lot of people run with that and it's, oh, it's, it's a fake. Um, it, it's not, it's not the shroud, um, you know, that covered Jesus. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Well, let me first say that we'll never be able to prove this cloth covered Jesus. That That's something science can never do unless right. somebody can produce the complete DNA profile of Jesus, the historic Jesus of Nazareth. So science, there's a limit to what science can do in that respect. So let's talk about the radiocarbon dating. So for anybody who's the uninitiated out there, let's just back up a bit and go to okay. 1988 when a, a little strip was cut from a corner of the shroud, divided in half, half set aside, the other half divided into approximate thirds and delivered to three radiocarbon dating labs to date the cloth. Uh, at the end of their process, they came up with a date, the date, a date range of 1260 to 1390. Um, the problem is there's plenty of evidence existent that the cloth was around well before that time and I'm not going you can find all that on shroud.com. I don't want to go into every detail here. But there was evidence that convinced many of us that the carbon dating couldn't be correct because there was evidence showing the shroud existed well before those dates. Um, however, once the news came out, uh, the whole world heard the shroud is a fake. We've proved it's a fake. It's not old enough. And that was the end of it. A lot of researchers walked away. Um, but some of us, I mean, I couldn't escape because I, I made those photographs in 78 and there was always a constant need from researchers and others to access them. So I could never kind of disengage completely. Anyway, the carbon dating came out for about a dozen years. Um, the, most of the world just said, well, shroud must be a fake. Um, even though our evidence proved that it wasn't any of those things that I mentioned earlier, they still said it was a fake. Um, 
But there were questions about the radiocarbon dating. And it wasn't until 2000 when two researchers, Joe Marino and Sue Benford, presented a paper at a conference in Italy that said, wait a minute, carbon dating was right. The only thing that was wrong was they chose a portion of the shroud that did not represent the main body of the shroud cloth. It had been manipulated and repaired. There was evidence of dye and, and reweaving in that area. And that's the only area of the shroud that they sampled. Now, as a little extra background information, there were three laboratories chosen, Oxford, Zurich, and Arizona. And the head of research at the British Museum, Dr. Michael Tight, was chosen as the man to supervise the three labs. Now, as soon as the results came out in the paper Nature, the Oxford Laboratory received a million pounds sterling anonymously for debunking the shroud, and Dr. Michael Tite resigned from the British Museum and took a permanent chair at Oxford. Now, that's wow. a matter of yeah, that's a matter of public record, but it never gets mentioned much, so I'm mentioning it. So knowing that and the fact that they used the debunking of the shroud to promote radiocarbon dating around the world. And it worked. It's, we believe, a multi-billion dollar a year industry now. Wow. And so I hate to say it, but, you know, because somebody once said this to me years ago, and I said, oh, it can't be about money. And I don't believe it was about money by itself, but it certainly didn't hurt them to promote radiocarbon dating, to have something as prominent as the Shroud of Turin to debunk. Now, since then, uh, when, when Benford Marino first presented their paper, um, I was excited. I was sitting in the front row with my camera, being a photographer and photographing everybody on stage. And I ran right up to Benford Marino and said, look, you got to let me put that on Shroud.com. They said, fine. I put it on Shroud.com and I got a phone call from Ray Rogers, the lead chemist of the STERP team from Los Alamos National Laboratories, no less. And uh, he chastised me for publishing what he called uh, crazy stuff from the lunatic fringe. And he said he had some material in his safe from the shroud that he would prove them wrong in five minutes. Well, it took him about an hour and a half to call me back. And when he called me back, he was much more quiet and demure and said, well, I don't believe it. And I said, what, Ray? I think they're right, he said. So he set out to prove them wrong and wound up proving him right. And the way he did it was he had a sample that had been given to him back in 79, and he knew that he couldn't publish based on that sample, the provenance of it, it would be in question. So he re remember I mentioned that they cut that strip in half and put half in reserve, and divided the other half amongst the three labs. Ray requested and received a portion of that reserve half, tested it, found all the same things he'd found in the sample he'd had in his safe, and he published a paper in a journal we all read, Thermochemica Acta. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah and it's on my coffee table. Yeah. yeah, it's mine too, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and he publishes this and basically says, look, the sample they tested, they may have gotten the right date for that sample, but that from that you cannot determine the accurate age of the rest of that cloth. And they only took that one sample. Any good scientist will say, you take another sample from somewhere far away, doesn't have to be anywhere near the image, just to have a control sample. They never did right. that. And so since then, there are now six peer-reviewed journaled articles that not only challenge the radiocarbon dating, but set it aside. And here's maybe the most interesting part of it. Back in 2018, a French researcher who also, who's a student of the Shroud, but also a legal student, went to England and knew that the British Museum housed all the data from the three labs, and he used the Freedom of Information Act and got them to release the raw data. For 27 years, all three laboratories refused to release their raw data the way most scientists generally would. And so Tristan Casabianca, who... Uh, took those legal actions and acquired that data, then brought on board a, a, a three other experts, including two who are expert at uh, data and statistical analyses, and they determined exactly the same thing, that they could not, based on the, the problems encountered with the strip that they had, which dated at one age at one end of that strip and a different 
dramatically different age at the other, that based on that one strip that they tested, they could never determine an accurate age for anywhere else on the shroud. So we now have six peer-reviewed papers challenging the one peer-reviewed paper that said the shroud is a fake. And maybe the biggest frustration I have is after those results came out, all the data published by STERP in the highest quality peer-reviewed journals was just discarded as if it didn't count. Well, it does count because that's the only data we have with measurements taken directly from the cloth. And that's why I said another round of testing is necessary before I'm satisfied that we've explored all the possibilities. Um, so is there going to be more testing as far uh, as you know? Boy, we, we would like that to be the case. Mm -hmm. I think that there probably isn't a Shroud Scholar in the world that wouldn't like to see another round of testing, again, paralleling what we did in 78, multidisciplinary team people chosen for their expertise in very specific needed disciplines, brought together working as a team, not under the auspices of any single organization, but like our team, we represented 20 some different organizations uh, from Los Alamos and Sandia Labs and the Jet Propulsion Lab, the Air Force Weapons Lab, our medical people were from uh, back east. So we were a very diverse group and not one organization controlled our work, which meant we worked as a team. All of our work was collated together and was released and published without the influence of any large you know, institutions that yeah. might be paying for it or something. Um, it's also interesting that um, the carbon-14 dating certainly can't explain um, the character, all of the characteristics of the image, which remain a mystery. So it's odd that they sure. just sort of ignore all that body well, of evidence. It can't com explain any of the characteristics of the okay. image. Well, Actually. there you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, is it... Simply the age of the cloth is supposedly what it's telling us. But, you know, like I said, there's plenty of evidence. Well, not as much as could be there, but there's evidence without a doubt that the shroud is older than those dates. Um, is it reasonable to think that a forger used a cadaver or a model? We, we know it's, you know, it's, it's a 3D image. Um, and somehow used blood to recreate this image. Is that a possibility? No, because the blood is on the cloth separately from the image. The blood got on the cloth by contact with the body. The image, there is image formation where there was no direct contact between the cloth and the body, up to about four centimeters. That's how the depth or 3D information got encoded. There's a correlation between the image density, the lights and darks of the image, and the distance between the cloth and the body. So where the body and the cloth came in direct contact, the image on the shroud is darkest. As the distance increased, it grows more faint until it reaches about four centimeters and stops. So again, the image is not made of bodily fluids. We've proven that. Right. So yeah, right, and so the, it's, the blood soaked through the cloth. It did. It's actually okay. visible on the reverse side. Uh, the blood stains absolutely soaked through the cloth the way one would expect using capillarity. That's what happened. Right. And the image is just on the superficial surface. surface. On, on the top fibrils, on top of the surface fibers. It's pretty amazing, yeah. Um, uh, what about the possibility of some kind of vapors? That's another thing I've, he I've he heard. I'm actually... Sure Actually, uh, that was first proposed by a French uh, researcher, uh, Vignon, back in, maybe it was in the 1930s, I'm, I'm not sure of the dates, but a long time ago. That was originally sort of discarded by Ray Rogers, our chemist, and he came back to that theory at the end of his life, even though he had said he thought it was dehydrated cellulose at first, he changed his opinion toward the end of his life, the last couple of years, and began to believe that that vaporograph theory that he had originally discarded and, and set aside might yet be in some ways partially responsible for the image. He believed something else was working at the same time that kept that those gases from the body correlated uh, collated into a vertical manner. Uh, but he and he was exploring that when he died. So he was still trying to further that research, but he passed away. Um, 
that's the only theory so far that I can think of that I've looked at that could account for that cloth to body distance correlation in the density of the image. That could happen with a chemical reaction of that nature. So, uh, so I think that that has a possibility, but even Roger said that he didn't believe that was the sole answer to how the image was formed. Um, well, I'm not a radiation guru, but is there something out there about radiation? Oh, there is. Oh, okay. Sure. There's a, there's a whole theory that uh, the, the shroud image was caused by a burst of radiation or perhaps right. neutron radiation. Um, and, and look, um, now we are projecting our minds onto what the resurrection mechanism might have been. Mm. Oh, Think about okay. it. Okay. Because, because people who promote that theory are saying that that event occurred during the resurrection event, that that radiation came from the resurrection event. Well, here's my problem with that theory. From a position of faith, I can understand a billion people believing that. But from a position of science, I've got to be honest. The scientific method says you cannot use an unknown, the mechanism of resurrection, to prove another unknown, the mechanism of image formation on the Shroud of Turin. Okay. So uh, and and the guys from Los Alamos who are pretty well knowledgeable about radiation have dispelled that in a number of the papers they published back in 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 early 80 81 82. So uh, so they didn't believe radiation because look radiation and and you you've got a, a medical background radiation will have impact on those fibers and it will be detectable and the only impact we found in the fibers uh, of the shroud from any radiation is the gamma radiation that we're experiencing even as we sit and talk to each other. Um, so you can't prove that this was Jesus and obviously you can't start back, you can't go backwards, you know, starting with the resurrection, as, that, that would not be a way to go. But well, how it, it, would be, it would be a way to go from a person of faith that's not right. worried about what the science says. And I don't have any problem with people who believe based on faith. That's what faith is all about. Right. But can I ask you a question? Say I'm a forensic pathologist or whatever they're called, and I'm going out and I'm I find this cloth um, with this image. Would the image be different if it was over a dead body for a long time, as opposed for three days? Or yeah, and that, and let's point out that that three days is only about 36 hours on the clock from Friday evening till Sunday morning. So so he's not, still like uh, rigor mortis. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so here's the thing. Uh, several forensic pathologists have done in-depth studies of the shroud. Uh, Dr. Robert Buckland was on our team. He was the guy they based the TV show Quincy on, and he was an advisor to the program. Oh, no way. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so you might know that name anyway. And uh, <laughs> the other was Dr. Uh, Frederick Zugaby, a forensic pathologist who was the medical examiner of Rockland County, New York, for 35 years and had 25,000 or more autopsies under his belt and spent 50 years of his life studying the effects of crucifixion on the human body. And those forensic pathologists both said, the man of the shroud is dead, okay? And I always point out that if this were an image generated by the resurrection, shouldn't the man be alive then? So mm -hmm. the, I, would, I would call this a pre-resurrection image based on that. But anyway, the forensic pathologists have studied the heck out of this. You can find a lot of that on shroud.com or in Dr. Zugaby's book, which we're not selling it, but it's available on Amazon. Uh, it's called uh, The Crucifixion of Jesus, A Forensic Inquiry. And it's, I mean, this is 50 years of this man's life studying this from his uh, position of expertise. So uh, I always defer to the forensic experts because I was lucky enough to know and work with both of those men. They're both passed away now. Uh, but what I know, the little that I know from the forensic side came from my experience with these two real experts and their work, as I say, it can be found on trial.com. Um, yeah, that, that I will look into that. That's, that's really interesting. Um, and I, so crucifixion obviously that was the historical um tale uh, and the ang would the angles of blood on um the cloth um they align with 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 someone who might have been crucified is that correct yeah that is correct that study was done by some folks 
can't remember exactly. There's lots of papers out there now. Uh, but it was done some years ago, and it was uh, actually quite some time ago. And that study, I think, had, holds up. It was done by uh, medical experts. And and there, by the way, speaking of which, there are many other papers and articles on trial.com that are written by medical experts, not necessarily forensic pathologists, but medical experts that can speak to with you know, yeah. with credibility to the the condition of the body as it's viewed on the shroud. Um, so these are some more specific questions that um, deal with uh, findings on the cloth. Um, I got I got one question about the pollen. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about pollen. Uh, <laughs> our, yeah. our 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 team had with us um, some special tape that Ray Rogers went to 3M and had them fabricate a special tape on a specific mylar background that would allow for uh, a polarized light microscopy right on the tapes themselves and with a gummy substance on the tape that would not come off and get stuck and leave residue on the shroud. Um, and so we and he designed a steel, stainless steel torque applicator to apply a known amount of pressure when he applied his tapes so that he could control the amount of pressure he applied. The, uh, but before our team started, a gentleman named Max Fry, a Swiss criminalist, was given an opportunity and he took tape samples from the shroud. Sadly, he used dime store sticky tape that he probably purchased on his way to the Royal Palace that day. And, and you know, he collected a lot of materials. He was using his thumb and put a lot of pressure on the cloth. And when he peeled it up, it was even more so. But he did collect a lot of materials. The problem is what Max didn't maybe remember was that the shroud, unlike the clothing of a crime scene victim, once it's been examined thoroughly forensically, they put it in a plastic bag on a shelf and nobody cares anymore. Uh, it, the shroud's a little different than that. People care about it. And so you want to be careful not to do anything that could be harmful. Wherever Max stuck his tape, there was gummy residue left that over time collected dust and had to be cleaned. So uh, our tapes, of course, didn't do that. Max then began to analyze his tapes and uh, we'll just let it go. Oh, that's okay. I knew I, you told me that you had to have your phone on. So let's yeah, I, I can't cut it out. It, it'll go after four. It'll stop. Okay. And I know where I left off so I can pick right up again. <laughs> I just make it part of the podcast. It's more organic that way. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, so Max started evaluating his tapes and started and he was an amateur palynologist. He was not a professional palynologist who is an expert in pollens, but he was an amateur at it and he began to uh, look at and identify pollens on these tapes. Well, the problem was Max got ill and died before he was able to publish his final work. So he never published his work in any kind of peer-reviewed journal of any kind. And sadly, because of that, we can only look at the, his conclusions as anecdotal because they've never withstood the scrutiny of peer review, which, you know, the most credible shroud evidence needs to be published in peer-reviewed journals. It needs to withstand the scrutiny of other experts of the same or similar disciplines. And if we don't do that, then we cannot point to that and say with definitive, uh, you know, statements that, oh, this is a fact. So I look at the pollen evidence currently as anecdotal at best. Um, and unfortunately, after the restoration of the shroud in 2002, where they vacuumed it and took, uh, uh, took cut away some of the charred areas and uh, took off the backing sheet and steamed it to get out some of the creases and wrinkles that were in it, it's now seven centimeters longer. Um, but they vacuumed so much of it that they disrupted wherever the pollens might be. In a proper pollen study, it's unlikely that, that a professional palynologist would be able to perform a professional pollen study now because of the disruption of all the materials that are there. Um, okay, it, it, it sounds like a lot of these researchers who had interesting stuff died. Well, you know. Putting, I mean, I know that happens, but. Yeah, it does. Well, you've got to remember this. Put yourself in my position. Uh, every time one of them dies, particularly those that were on our team, I have to write the, you know, the obituary for them and put them on shroud.com. 
So it's really painful for me because some of these men were like brothers, you know, we were yeah. brothers in arms in a sense. Uh, and that's the problem. 42 years have gone by. Some of the guys were in their 50s and 60s back then. So they've passed away. We've lost about at least half that team is gone now. Um, and so uh, that's why it's been so imperative for me to try and collect as much of our materials as I can and get them online so that future researchers don't have to start from scratch and trying to find this. It'll all be in one place. Right. And that's basically what Shroud.com has accomplished. But as far as pollens go, look, uh, again, not my field of expertise. I can only go by what others have said. There have been many claims made about pollens that they come from specific areas of Jerusalem. They only bloom in a certain year. Look, I cannot dispute that, but there's no published science that's withstood any kind of credible peer review that can confirm those things. And um, that's maybe the biggest problem I have is that, you know, sure. my I learned my discipline from all these hard. Imagine me, a guy with a Bachelor of Arts degree in photography, <laughs> hanging out with these physicists and chemists from Los Alamos National Labs. And I'll tell you, I learned about empiricism from these guys. They were the most honest when it came to their science, the most honest em empirical people I have ever met, especially Ray Rogers. And uh, you won't find too many people in the world of the Shroud who said, you know, I initially thought this, but new evidence has come out, and now I think something different than that. Good luck finding anybody else that's ever done that, but Ray Rogers did. So I always admired him, and he always used to yell at me <laughs> when I would write the word proven in anything. I would get a phone call, and he would yell at me and say, we don't have enough evidence to say that's proven. You can say that the preponderance of evidence is pointing in that direction. <laughs> So he always corrected me, but that also disciplined me to understand that, you know, we have different levels of evidence in a courtroom. We have the preponderance of evidence in a civil trial beyond a reasonable doubt in a, in a criminal trial and science have to a scientific certainty, which is way higher than all the others. And so to a scientific certainty, we have to be careful because it's easy for skeptics to say, oh, well, that's just bogus science. And, you know, there has been some that might fall in that category for pro-shroud. And so I always say that I would rather see less good science than more bad science because it just provides ammunition for the skeptics to attack, which they do on a regular basis. Um, true. There's also profit-fueled science, which the that carbon-14 story you, you told could possibly maybe think maybe someone might think that would fall in there. I don't know. It would, um, but look, here. let me point one thing up. Thank you. You reminded me of something. So here's the thing. Roger's paper came out challenging the radiocarbon dating results. Perfect opportunity for the three labs to speak up and say, hey, we didn't choose the sample. They didn't. That was cut and chosen and handed to them in sealed containers. So they had no hand in selecting where the sample would come from. They easily could have said, look, they, we just dated what they gave us. If the samples were flawed, it's not our fault. But instead, they remained totally silent. And there's a reason for that, because they didn't want any scrutiny, which since then, of course, has come out. They violated every one of their own protocols that they themselves set at their protocol meeting, every single one of them. There's a new book coming out by Joe Marino, and it's about 700 pages and wow. it will go into great detail on what happened before, during, and after the radiocarbon dating of the Shroud. And I firmly believe that's going to become the definitive reference on what occurred because it's got more de – I mean, 700 pages. <laughs> Figure it out. It's, there's wow. enough detail there to fill a couple of books. And, um, what's uh, and the name that, of the book? You know, I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> well, sorry. <laughs> I'll tell you what, give me a, give me a second here. I'd have to That's go. That's okay. I, I just, yeah. it was a natural question, but. It, um, it, you know what? As I was saying it, I realized you were going to ask me the question. <laughs> I knew that was coming. And, and I'm so, my apologies to Joe, who has a tendency to listen to these, although I haven't promoted this one in advance. Um, um, but I'll promote it fun. once it's online. I have a name to work with. Um, are, are you looking it up or you're. you're no. Oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. I was waiting to hear what you were saying there. I'm oh, sorry. oh. Um, no, I mean, I, I, we have the name of the man and we can look it up. There's the internet. Yeah, it's, so. it's, it's on our Facebook page. Oh, perfect. Stera, Stera dot 
Inc. Stera is our Shroud of Turin Education and Research Association nonprofit. And so the acronym is S-T-E-R-A dot I-N-C. And that is our Facebook page, facebook.com, okay. Inc. And uh, so you can see, and it's, it's the first posting on the page, I believe. So, uh, so you can find it that way. And my apologies to Joe for forgetting it again. That's his fault for making it a really long title. <laughs> you know, um, what are you, uh, there is a book, uh, uh, I think it's the coming of the quantum Christ. You reviewed it, right? John Klotz's book. Uh, what are your thoughts on that book? Well, you know, John approached the Shroud from a very uh, philosophic and Catholic point of view. Um, may he rest in peace. He passed away. Had, he got pancreatic cancer, oh. sadly. And, um, but, you know, again, I don't really get much involved in philosophic or theologic discussions because that's really not my strength. And there's so many qualified people in the world of the Shroud that have addressed those issues with far more credibility than I ever could. So I, I just usually say, look, when it comes to the philosophy of the Shroud, look, I, one of my common statements in my lectures is that I don't believe the answer to faith is on that piece of cloth at all. I believe the answer to faith is in the eyes and hearts of the people who look at it. And you know what? Jesus said the kingdom of God is within us. So I think it's sort of incumbent on each person to sort of evaluate this and decide what does it mean to me. Uh, probably the smartest words I ever wrote are on the front page of Shroud.com in the opening paragraph. It said, uh, we believe that given the facts, you have to make up your own mind about this. So our website doesn't push any yeah. particular theory, but I'm free to tell you that I have accepted it as authentic. But that doesn't mean anybody else needs to take my word for it. That's why I've put all the evidence there. The evidence is there for anybody willing to be, you know, who sees it as important to them. Go take a look at even just peripherally at what we did and, and then formulate an opinion based on the facts, based on direct examination of that cloth. Um, okay, I have two more questions related sure. to specific things about the shroud. The one thing um, in the image of the heel and also the nose, uh, was there uh, particles of limestone? Me. There, there was limestone found, last that I heard, it was found near the, the feet or the heel. Uh, I didn't hear about it in the nose. It's not saying that maybe they didn't find some there, but I do recall for certain I believe it was uh, uh, Dr. Eugenia Natowski, I believe, was the one who made that claim. But also uh, she had done lots of research in limestone caves in Jerusalem. So she had the qualification to identify that limestone. So I do believe it was found on the shroud. I'm, I'm almost certain it was found near the feet or heel. I don't know about the nose. Okay. Um, and that would relate to... Uh, just the way the person was walking in Jerusalem where they use this on, on the, in the paths or either whatever. walking in Jerusalem or in a line in the limestone cave that, uh, that oh, his body okay. was placed in. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Not, okay. Um, all right. Another, this is the other specific question. Um, in the Roman burials, they put the, the leptin coins over the eyes to keep the eyes closed. Well, is there, okay. No. You've now, heard this one before. Okay. Uh, are you kidding me? I was there. <laughs> I was there when Father Francis Phyllis first presented that to the Sturp group in probably 1979. Uh, and I immediately was concerned that he was extrapolating something there that really wasn't. And the reason I say that, and this is a whole separate conversation. People find lots of stuff on the shroud that probably really isn't there. Uh, one man uh, in Jerusalem who was a botanist uh, of a Noam Danin, he told me he saw 5,000 flower images on the shroud. Others have seen the implements of the passion, a whip, sandals, uh, a sponge uh, with uh, at the end of a stick. All, all of these implements of the passion some people claim they've seen and found on the shroud um well i'll tell you it depends on which image you're looking at whether or not you're even going to see the same thing because the photographs made in 1931 by giuseppe Henriet were beautifully done 
but when he lit the shroud, he cross-lit it, so there was deep shadowing in the weave, making the weave very prominent in his images. And what that does is it creates an infinite background of shapes, and when the human eye is in, encounters an infinite background of shapes, the brain, without any effort on our conscious mind, starts trying to find a familiar shape or pattern in that myriad pattern of shapes. And the minute it sees something that's similar to something in our pattern memory, that's what we see. The best example, it's called pareidolia. The best example of that is the face of the man in the moon. Some people see a face, some people do not. Is there a face? Well, probably not really, no. But people will see it. That's why optical illusions work. People forget that whatever goes in our eye goes straight out the back through the optic nerve, straight into the brain, and gets interpolated before we perceive it. You're a doc. You know about these things better than I do, probably. And consequently, like I say, this is why optical illusions work. Our brains can easily be fooled. And looking into a random pattern of shapes we're going to start seeing shapes that are identifiable to us. Well, that looks like a, a penguin or that looks like Mickey Mouse or something. And that doesn't mean that's what's there. So any secondary images that people have claimed are on the shroud, whether it be flowers or implements of the passion or pictures of the Virgin Mary or God only knows, I can't remember all the ones that people have sent me. We just made a startling discovery on the shroud. This thing's been studied for about a hundred and some years now. Uh, from a scientific point of view, if that were there, you don't think somebody else would have seen it before now? And so I always kind of have to take these with a grain of salt because being the photographer, I'm, I'm the one who receives all the emails with all these uh, things that people have supposedly found on the shroud. So as far as the coin inscriptions, that is impossible. And I'll explain it to you in the words of Don Lynn, who was the imaging top imaging guy on our STERP team, he was head of imaging on Voyager, Viking, Mariner, and Galileo for the NASA uh, at, at, um, uh, in, in whatever it's called. I forgot their name already. Jet uh, Propulsion Lab. Thank you very much. Um, anyway, Don Lynn said, you cannot resolve something smaller than the weave itself, or as he put it, than the smallest pixel size, which in this case is the weave. And so basically, if you take a dime out of your coin purse and look at the inscription on it, and then look at the size of the weave of the shroud, you'll see the inscription on that coin is actually smaller than the weave, and there's no way to properly resolve that correctly and accurately on, on something as coarsely woven as the shroud. So I do not accept that there are coin inscriptions, but I do accept that something might be on the eyes. It could be a coin. It could be a pot shard, a broken piece of pottery. Uh, I don't know. Well, nobody really knows for sure, but I do not, and I will continue to dispute, I do not accept and will continue to dispute that one can read a coin inscription on that cloth. One cannot. Um, would you say, obviously this has a, a religious a huge, massive religious um, affiliation. Well, Someone deny that, right? Some would call it a bias, which, um, which is kind of, it's kind of good that you are, you know, you're Jewish and you and you, you weren't um, raised with all. all yeah, this. I don't, I don't have that bias. In, in case anybody's wondering, no, I'm not a messianic. <laughs> I'm not a messianic Jew. I'm not a Christian. I, I've right. not been baptized, although I get evangelized a lot. <laughs> hey, listen, I, I take that as an expression of love. I'm not offended when people want me to feel in my heart what they feel in theirs. I understand that. I'm not offended by that. Yeah, and it's I, the way they well, go about it sometimes. Yeah, I love, well, even, even that. Like, you know what I always tell them? I said, look, I didn't expect to be lecturing in front of 500 people today. So how do I know where I'll be tomorrow? So relax, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> um, would in, in your opinion, um, is there a... A, a consensus um, within the scientific community, or is there a, is there a good amount of scientists who don't have um, who aren't interested in the shroud for a religious reason, or you know, just kind of looking at it very objectively, looking at the evidence? Um, there's is there a good proportion of scientists who believe that it is authentic? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I can't uh, you know provide a list or anything, but uh, yeah. uh, but there are, yeah there are many out there, and look uh, there. Some who had walked away from it after the carbon dating who have now starting to come back going, well, wait a minute. Hmm. We have enough evidence now that 
we don't have to take that carbon dating as seriously as we did. There's plenty of evidence now to show that the sample that was chosen wasn't viable. That's all. So we're not saying, oh, you know, the, the shrouds are fake or the shrouds are authentic. We're just saying that the carbon dating was wrong. That's all. And so there are others, like I say, there are some who have stuck to their guns and have been skeptics. Matter of fact, in this next update to our website, probably late toward the end of October, uh, I'll publish a couple of papers from one of our team members who's still skeptical. So, you know, one of the things we do on trial.com is we don't just publish one side of the argument. Uh, in the last update, we noted wow. five new five new books, <clears throat> two of which were written by avowed famous shroud skeptics. So we try to be fair and and point out, but there's far more evidence in favor of its authenticity than against it. Um, is the next public viewing still 2025? Is that right? That's, that's what was proposed by John Paul II before he passed away. And that happens to be the next holy year of the Catholic Church. Uh, I always, at that point, say, how many Jewish guys know that, do you think? <laughs> I was going to say, I didn't know that. I was raised <laughs> yeah. Catholic. So. <laughs> yeah. so, yeah, but that is the next holy year of the church. So, uh, so my guess is that whoever the existing pope will be at, you know, two year, year or two beforehand, which is coming up, uh, if it's Francis, he would most likely honor the uh, wishes of his predecessor and, and would probably... Um, agree to have the shroud on exhibit. He hasn't hesitated to allow it to be shown uh, in his terms. So uh, so I expect that'll be the case, but it's not yet been officially announced. Usually about 18 months or 20 months in advance, uh, they usually give people a heads up uh, because then they have to begin to prepare Turin to receive a million or two million visitors. And they have to train thousands of volunteers and organize it and do security and I mean, they do a wonderful job when they put the shroud on public display. If you are impaired in any way, they have wheelchairs with somebody to push you through the exhibit. Uh, if you're visually impaired, they have something. It's a sculpted version of the shroud that people can feel with their hands, visually impaired people. They really make it very viable to come and visit. And now uh, over the last number of exhibitions with the Internet, as uh, important as it is, now you just can make a reservation. It's free. It doesn't cost anything, but you have to have a reservation. And what that does is it avoids the long lines. Back in 78, when we were there, people started getting in line at 5 o'clock in the morning, kind of like a Black Friday sale at Walmart. And, and there were 100,000 people waiting in a line, sometimes 10 hours just to get in and see it. That's all behind us now. Now you go online. Once they put that reservation system online, and we'll link to it, of course. Uh, then you go online, you pick the date and time you want to be there, and you make the appointment, and they tell you, show up on time, don't show up too early. And that way the the line is maybe 15 to 30 minutes and maybe a little longer on weekends, but there's not the 10-hour wait that they experienced in the earlier days before the Internet. So my, my hope is they'll do it in 25. Uh, I'm going to be pretty old by then, and hopefully I'll be able to get to see it one more time, God willing. And, uh, I was and just going to ask I'll, you, I'll, you're going to go see it again? If I, I've seen it every time since 78. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Wow. wow. Um, I guess I, the last question, I just kind of, um, it, it, you know, it just this is such a great mystery. Um, and I guess in the last, is there anything um, that struck you uh you know, anything new about the shroud, anything new that was revealed in the last five years that made you like get excited or, oh, wow, or like haven't heard that one before? Um, no, no, because remember, there's been no access to the shroud. So there's right. no, new, no new data. And the only thing that was new data happened in 2018 when Tristine Casabianca that I mentioned before uh, got the raw data released from the British Museum. That was the that was new data. That was absolutely something new that hadn't been available for almost 30 years. So. Wow. But that new data further concluded, based on statistical analysis of their samples and their numbers, that there's no way that the sample that they used could give an accurate date for anywhere else on that cloth. That's all. I mean, it's it's so pretty. It's kind of a mic drop. That's not like that's that's. that's uh, I would say that six <laughs> peer-reviewed papers. I don't know that we need seven. I, I mean, that's yeah. enough, I think, for any credible person who has an open mind, who hasn't already made their mind up, 
because what I've discovered is once people have made up their minds, God himself could come down and point to it and go, I did that. And people would deny it. So the way I see it, um, the evidence is there for those who want it. And for those who don't walk away, I don't care. I'm not keeping score. I had a guy come up to me in Vancouver, British Columbia, and told me he thought my lecture was great, but I would never convince him. And I looked him right in the face, and I said, what makes you think I even care what you believe? That's between you and God. Take it up with him. That's not my job. Yeah. My job is simply to present the evidence and allow you to make up your own mind. That's my job. Um, but you're convinced. I'm convinced, or I wouldn't have dedicated myself to doing this. I'll tell you the truth, and, and this is sincerely now. It took a while for me to realize, and I say a while, I mean a number of years, to realize just how privileged I had been to be in that room with that piece of cloth. There were probably a million people on this planet who had more right to be there than I did, and yet for some reason I was the guy there to do what I did, which was to document the event and eventually become the archivist of the group. Um, so I feel that my purpose in all of this at the beginning of it all, it was just to make some photographs. It was no big deal. I, I, I even said stupidly, yeah, give us five minutes. We'll find a paint and I'll come home, you know. <laughs> of course, that didn't happen. And so it took me a long time. But I, I personally believe this, that I accept it as authentic, as the authentic burial shroud of the historic Jesus. That's a statement based on science and history rather than any emotional, theological, or religious points of view. And look, forget a moment, let's put the religion aside, just let's look at this man as a human being, one human to another. He was willing to sacrifice himself in the most horrible way for what he believed in. Now, as just a human being looking at another human being, how can you not admire and feel something for that man? Whether you're a Christian, a Jew, a Muslim, or a heathen, it doesn't matter. This is a human being who believed so strongly and his message, look what he was willing to do to convey that message. So, I, and remember, he, he was one of our boys. <laughs> he was, one, he was <laughs> as, as were most of the disciples. So, so I, I've never had that problem with being involved with the shroud when people are, oh, you're Jewish, why are you involved? I go, well, that's a Jewish burial shroud of a Jewish man. Right. So why shouldn't I be involved? Right. Um, yeah, but, but I'm not involved from the same point of view that many of my viewers and followers are. I understand that. They understand that. I've spoken like this on multiple occasions. People know where I stand with this. I'm not putting any pretense up of, of any uh, false piety or anything like that. I just felt a great privilege to be in that room, and I realized years later that that privilege brought with it a responsibility. I wasn't in that room for me. I was in that room for you. Um, thank you so much, Barry. That um, I think we're at almost, I, I got all my questions in. Um, unless you want to add anything else, feel free. No, but I appreciate the I, opportunity. I, I will say that for sure. Um, yes, and, and, and thank you. It was it was great to connect, and I really look forward to sharing this and getting feedback. And I learned a lot too. So I'm always very grateful to uh, learn from my guests to you know come on. Um, my and, pleasure. And, yes. And, and just as a quick final ending note, uh, I was married to a woman named Erin. Oh God, God bless. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, that's okay. <laughs> okay. Um, how did she spell her name? Just like you spell it. Oh, E-R, okay, because sometimes people spell it, yeah, differently. Um, so she was Irish, no? Oh, she... boy, freckles, strawberry oh. blonde, yes, very oh, much. So. I... I don't know, I, I guess this might be a little off topic, but uh, there <laughs> seems to be some special attraction between Jewish men and Irish women. I don't know what it is. No, I've noticed that. I mean, yeah. yeah there really well, is. <laughs> well, that, <laughs> what that can I be, say? That could be another website, I guess. Um I guess. Anyways. <laughs> I never uh, expected to end on that note. <laughs> no, that's okay. This uh, my podcast always go down tangents, but um, I I like the the free flow and talk. I just feel like it's a more honest conversation and uh, um, more real. So I agree. Um, yeah. Um, anyways, Barry, have a have a good rest of your night, and my apologies to your cats for. Um, stealing, yeah. stealing. They're sleeping <laughs> somewhere. They they know what to do when I'm busy. They go to sleep. <laughs> and I will uh, 
I'm going to post, I'll send this to you and I'll you know be sure to send all my listeners to your website. Sure. All right. I have to go walk my dog, but thank you again and, uh, and have a great rest of your night in uh, Colorado, right? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much. Have fun. I don't have to walk my cats. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And thanks again. All right, guys, I want to thank you so much for tuning in and listening. Please feel free to share this episode, um, subscribe to Causes or Cures, check out some of the other episodes that I have up. Most importantly, I hope you learned something or I hope something in there piqued your interest. I know I learned a lot. Um, I want to thank Barry because that was a phenomenal discussion the reason I do these podcasts is because I often learn so much from my guests, and this is no exception. If you guys have any feedback, comment, hate mail, love mail, whatever, you can reach me through my website, bloomingwellness.com. Uh, my email follows that, Aaron at bloomingwellness.com. Or you can find me on all of those social media sites, just like everybody else. All right, guys, take care and talk soon.